Aeschylus, the ancient Greek tragedian, said that, quote, in war, truth is the first casualty, unquote. And for a world almost constantly at war for more than a century now, truth is indeed often difficult to come by. That's why many of us turn to independent journalists for news. And even for them, their work is sometimes more difficult to carry out because the powers that be try to defame them, deplatform them, and silence them. I'm John Kiriakou. Welcome to The Whistleblowers. Our guest today has the unenviable task of being a war reporter working for himself. That's right, he doesn't report to any news agency. And indeed, he's known as the world's only crowdfunded war correspondent. Patrick Lancaster is a former member of the U.S. Navy, specializing in cryptography on the USS Kitty Hawk. With an interest in journalism, he moved to Ukraine in 2014 to cover the Maidan Revolution. He settled in Donetsk later that year and has remained ever since, covering developments during slow times and hot war. His work frequently appears in Russian news outlets, but he has also become a prominent contributor to YouTube and other platforms. Patrick, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Let's start at the beginning. You are one of the very few journalists who has been in the Donbass almost for the duration of the conflict. What have you seen from your time in the field? Tell us what it's like there, but especially what it's like for the civilians in the area. Um, well, yeah, I've, uh, I've been here uh, since uh, 2014, almost exactly uh, nine years now. In about a week, it'll be exactly uh, nine years. Uh, and before that, I was in Crimea uh, during the, the, uh, the evolutions uh, there and the referendum. Um, but, uh, yeah, I came to uh, Donetsk after the referendum in uh, uh, Crimea because I wanted to continue to uh, try to show what was really happening, even though I didn't speak any Russian at the time and didn't really even know a lot about the political situation between uh, Russia and Ukraine. But when I went to Crimea, it was the first time I really saw how what was being shown in the West in the media wasn't really the the reality of, the, of what was happening because I arrived in Crimea just before the referendum and I was expecting to see uh, Russian soldiers um, uh, forcing uh, people to go to uh, vote and really imposing the, the their will on the people without the people's uh, permission but when I got there I saw how happy the uh, the people of Crimea the Russian people of Crimea the vast majority uh, was that uh, Russia was there and that they were having a chance to go uh, back to uh, Russia. Because, I mean, uh, any uh, person born bet uh, before the f in 50s that uh, was born in Crimea was born in Russia. Um, in, in, uh, Crimea was given to Ukraine in the 50s, which a lot of um, residents consider it was uh, an illegal uh, turnover of the land to uh, Ukraine. But, um, I mean, it's kind of a long-winded <laughs> answer, but eventually I uh, came in April of 2014 to Donetsk, and 
began uh, to see how the people here were doing their best to try to break away from Ukraine as well, because in my opinion, a lot of them saw what happened in Crimea, and they, they thought they had a chance to um, break away their land here and join Russia like uh, Crimea did. But unfortunately, um, it didn't quite turn out that uh, quick and easy for them. Um, I'm, as we all know, I, uh, this uh, nine-year war uh, developed after the protesters took control and basically put up um, borders and Ukrainian forces attacked them for that and uh, for the last nine years continued to uh, bomb and shell residential areas. And of course, there's uh, fighting between militaries. Um, the in 2014, the locals, they developed uh, somewhat of a ragtag army at first and uh, that basically consisted of unexperienced uh, miners, farmers, and just normal uh, locals. But they were able to do it and um, uh, they... As time went on, the uh, the infrastructure of the Donetsk People's Republic uh, started to develop and become more of a real country. I mean, I, over the years, I saw their their government and their uh, military force just become more and more professional. And all of this in this time was happening with the local population just praying that one day they would become uh, part of Russia. I mean, and this is the fact. This is what the Western mainstream media won't tell you, is that it, 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 for the last nine years in these two uh, regions, the people have just been trying their best. By these two, I mean Donetsk and Lugansk region, were trying their best to break away from Ukraine. And uh, even in Mariupol, we hear all this about the battle in Mariupol. In 2014, there was a referendum in Mariupol, and Mariupol showed that they wanted to break away from Ukraine, but Ukraine it came in and forced their laws and their borders back on Mariupol. Um, and it, just like the same happened in Kramatorsk, Slavyansk. Uh, I was in Kramatorsk uh, when Ukraine came in in 2014, July. I was standing there in, in, in the square as Ukraine came in and took control again of uh, the city of Kramatorsk. I met so many people there that were happy that Ukraine was gone. And when we saw the, that Ukraine was coming back and the, um, the Donetsk People's Republic forces had uh, withdrawn. People were crying in the streets that uh, their chance of joining Russia, or at least being away from Ukraine, was gone. And during these last nine years, I have seen dozens, I mean, hundreds, not dozens, but hundreds of civilian homes uh, hit by uh, Ukrainian uh, attacks. And these aren't necessarily uh, an accident. I mean, these are just random attacks on civilian uh, neighborhoods. Just a few days ago, this is all posted on my Telegram channel, I uh, came to a location where Ukraine had dropped what they call uh, anti-tank mines, and particularly uh, they're called AT2. Uh, they were given to Ukraine by the German uh, uh, military, and they call them anti uh, tank mines, but really they're anti-whatever touches them. And 
just days ago, Ukraine launched them on the neighborhood of Oktoberski, not far from the Donetsk uh, airport, and they came down and one uh, exploded and ripped through the legs of an elderly man, tearing his legs off, and he lived just long enough to sit, uh, to sit up and be taken to the hospital and died on the way to the hospital. And just moments after he left in the, in the ambulance, on the uh, other side of the building, another one of the anti-tank mines went off and ripped through one of the legs of an elderly woman and luckily she uh, survived and was taken to the hospital. I actually went to the hospital uh, today and had a uh, talk with the assistant director of the hospital and luckily she looks like she's going to make it. Um, but these are just, uh, just one example of time and time again that Ukraine fires on civilian areas and particularly with Western or NATO supplied weapons. I mean, there's no reason that a uh, Western supplied weapon should be used on civilian areas, but it happens over and over and over again. We're talking everything from the 155 millimeter uh, shells that the U.S. is supplying to the HIMARS rocket that the U.S. is supplying. These are all these Western supplied weapons that I've seen many times with my own eyes and filmed and documented and the evidence is on my channel of these Western uh, weapons being used on the civilians of these areas just over and over again. And that kind of gives an overview of uh, what, what I've seen. But as in all of my reports, I tell the people, show, uh, watch my reports, but also watch things on the other side of the line. Because on the other side of the line, on the Kiev side, there's thousands of journalists giving reports in English, but on this side, there's not too many. So I just do my best to show what the situation is here, and then can pe people can watch as much information as possible and make their own decisions on the opinions they want to make. Here in the United States, the alternative media have at least tried to educate Americans on what the Azov Battalion is. But the mainstream media either ignores Azov or presents a false history of the organization. Tell us about what the Azov Battalion is, how it started, and where you've encountered it. Well, the Azov Battalion is a battalion that has been around since, uh, uh, I believe, 2014, middle, a little before. But basically, I try to, in my reports, I try to show exactly what I've seen. And let's go from that for the, the, the last part of your question. What I've seen of the Azov Battalion, uh, my first day in Mariupol, almost exactly a year ago, just under a year ago, when I went in during the heat of the battle, I found a basement of a school. Um, it was school number 25 in Mariupol, where we went down and discovered that it was it just maybe a day or, or two before was being used as a base by the Azov Battalion. We found the Ukrainian um, uniforms, Azov patches, different types of patches. And uh, we saw burned out uh, weapons and guns that they, it appeared that they had burned these uh, guns so they wouldn't fall into the hands of the Russians or the Donetsk People's Republic forces. And as we went through this base, we uh, came to an opening. Everything was very dark, but we came to this opening where there was some light coming into the basement. And this is, again, this is the basement of a school, school number 25. It can be looked up on the map. And um, we, uh, we found a woman uh, laying dead on the ground. Um, it, Naked, had, it was a little bit covered up and uh, closed, but not totally. And it was clear that she had been uh, raped 
and tortured. She had a plastic bag over her head and co covered in blood. And she had a swastika uh, carved on her uh, stomach and bloody. And this w w clearly appeared to be Azov forces took a civilian into their base in, in this uh, base of this uh, school, the basement of this school, and raped and tortured this young woman uh, and carved a swastika on her uh, stomach. And in Mariupol, there's many reports of things like this. I mean, it, it was quite an emotional time going from place to place in Mariupol and seeing so many civilians killed. I had seen a hospital where there was hundreds of dead bodies and some of the women had their hands uh, tied um, and so many reports uh, from what the locals were telling me that the Azov battalion was shooting civilians as they tried to evacuate now I didn't see that with myself just as what this is just what the civilians told but I did see this um, this woman with a swastika carved in her stomach in the basement of the school that the Azov was using as a base and what e even made it worse if it's even possible is that just weeks after I broke this story of this woman that was tortured and killed and raped by the Azov Battalion, um, the uh, uh, the assistant of uh, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, put out the photo of my report, uh, as well as several uh, deputies from Ukraine, that this woman was from Bucha, and it was Russian atrocities, and it accused the Russians of torturing this uh, woman near uh, Kiev, in the Kiev region, um, and it got picked up by different Western media sources, and still to this day, you can find these reports of the Western media saying that a, the Russians uh, tortured this woman and carved a swastika on her chest, having this photo, but in reality, this photo came from Mariupol in the basement of a school that was at Azov Battalion. Just total lies coming from the Ukrainian government about situations like this. And there are many situations like this where they totally use the Ukrainian war crimes and try to turn it around against Russia. And the fact is that, of course, in any war, on any side of the line, there's so many people involved. There's war crimes on each side of every war, all going back to Desert Storm, Iraq War, and beyond. But the fact is, when it happens, the government shouldn't be lying about it. The Ukrainian government should have accepted this war crime and done something to try to bring the people to justice instead of lying about what had, ha what had happened. I'm curious to know, Patrick, the reaction of people in the Donbass to what we see here in the United States. Ukrainian President Zelensky is greeted in Washington, for example, as a conquering hero. He addresses a joint session of Congress. He addresses the Academy Awards ceremony. There are even action figures of Zelensky for sale in toy stores. How do people in the Donbass view the way the United States and the West view the conflict? Well, I can tell you... Um I just moments ago, half an hour ago, filmed a report on the reactions of the locals here in Donetsk, in the center city of uh, Finland, joining 
Russia, or excuse me, joining uh, NATO, and uh, asked them what they thought about uh, the situation and particularly what they would say to Zelensky if they had a chance. And, the, and this is what I do in a lot of my reports. I try to get the opinions of what they would say to Zelensky, uh, Biden, and uh, 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 Putin as well. And the vast majority, virtually all, um, the most common thing that they say about Zelensky is that they hate him. And the most common thing that they say about Putin is they thank you and they hope he helps more to protect them here. Um, so it, basically, from what you see in the West to what the real situation here is on the ground in Donbass, as far as the mentality of the people, is totally Trans, uh, uh, night and day. I mean, the fact is, the people here on the ground consider themselves Russian and want to be part of Russia and want to have nothing to do with Ukraine. These are the facts here on the ground, at least in the Donetsk and Lugansk uh, republics. We're speaking with independent journalist Patrick Lancaster. We're going to take a short break and continue on with our conversation, so please stay tuned. Als Teil der Sanktionen gegen Russland gehen die westlichen Länder gegen russische Auslandssender vor. Mais écoutez, Monsieur, c'est pas à vous de décider de qui est journaliste ou pas dans ce pays. On est en France, quoi. C'est pas possible. We will ban in the European Union the Kremlin's media machine. The state-owned Russia Today and Sputnik. RT, Sputnik, even our video agency, roughly all banned on YouTube. Et merci à vous tous pour votre fidélité et votre soutien. In 1935, fascist Italy, led by dictator Benito Mussolini, decided to expand its colonial empire in Africa and take over Ethiopia. By that time, Ethiopia was the only fully independent state on the continent. Back in 1896, its inhabitants were able to defeat the Italian colonists and defend their independence. Since then, Rome craved for revenge for the humiliating defeat. In the morning of October 3, 1935, without any announcement, the fascists attacked Ethiopia and bombarded it most severely. Ethiopian armed forces fought courageously, but the brutality of the Italians knew no bounds. They used not only massive bombing attacks on civilians, but also chemical weapons, toxic gases. This changed the course of the war. As a result of the occupation of Ethiopia by the fascists, 760,000 people were killed. The capture of the African state was committed with Europe's tacit approval. 
Britain and France recognized the annexation, giving the green light to further fascist expansion in the world and paving the way for the outbreak of World War II. Welcome back to The Whistleblowers. I'm John Kiriakou. We're speaking with independent journalist Patrick Lancaster, who has spent much of the past year, much of the past many years, reporting from the Donbass. Patrick, thanks again for being with us. One of the things that we've heard rumblings about here in the United States is the lack of accountability within the Ukrainian government for the massive numbers of weapons entering that country from the United States and the rest of NATO. We've also seen reports that many of these weapons have quickly found their way to the black market. What have you seen? Well, uh, from the uh, get-go of last year, even before, um, before what uh, what is called the the special operation uh, by uh, Russia, before even before that, uh, I saw um, Western weapons being used on uh, the civilian infrastructure of uh, Donetsk, particularly last January, just before this all escalated, I saw a Western, um, I believe it was 60-millimeter uh, uh, mortars uh, used on an electric substation. And since then, of course, the amount of weapons that have been supplied to Ukraine has increased quite a bit. So now it's almost, it's more common to see the Western supplied weapons than it is any Soviet area weapons. Um, daily, uh, 155 millimeter uh, rounds that's supplied by the West, particularly the United States, has been dropped on the civilian areas here in Donetsk and the Lugansk area and many other civilian areas. I mean, this is a fact. Um, and of course, I've filmed the HIMARS uh, coming down on many areas, uh, in civilian areas. And of course, there, with the amount of increase of Western supplied weapons, there are also weapons that have been supplied by the West, but that are now under control of Russia. Um, because when Russia moves in and Ukraine evacuates, Russia takes these Western supplied weapons and then uses them back against Ukraine. This is something that's pretty common as well, particularly the javelins uh, and many other types of weapons. And now that the um, the more jets and tanks are being supplied by Ukraine, I think it's just a, or excuse me, supplied by the West to Ukraine. I think it's just a matter of time before we see uh, the Russian forces using these jets and tanks against uh, Ukraine forces. And uh, even before that, we're going to see a lot of uh, the uh, Western supplied tanks and jets being destroyed. Patrick, what do you think is the ultimate destination for these weapons? In the case of Syria, many of the weapons provided by the United States to its Kurdish allies there ended up being used in the fighting in Libya. This isn't anything new, and there don't seem to be any controls once the weapons arrive. What's, your bit, what's been your experience? Well, um, I mean, as far as uh, what's going to happen down the road and as far as the uh, the black market use, can't really... I haven't seen any of this with my uh, own eyes, 
Besides the fact, as I said, the weapons getting used back uh, in, in the hands of the Russian forces. I mean, so that that's pretty something that's pretty common for the last year is the weapons being used against Ukraine. Uh, but as far as uh, black market sales, can't really comment a lot, uh, a lot on that. But uh, the situation is that a lot of these weapons are going from the hands of the Ukrainians right into the hands of the Russians to be used against uh, Ukraine. Like many Americans, I read the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal every morning. I like to think that I'm educated enough and worldly enough to recognize biased reporting when I see it. So I take what I read with a grain of salt. You're an American. Tell us what isn't being reported from the region in the American media. Well, in 2014, um, when uh, President uh, Yanukovych was kicked out of office after Maidan uh, being accused of mass slaughter of protesters, uh, the locals here in the East viewed him as their president and that uh, that he was ousted without their permission. And then the new president or new government that uh, uh, most of the residents here look at as the that was placed by the United States, um, the, this new government moved right away to illegalize Russian holidays and the Russian language being taught in public schools. And for this, for this side of the country, for the ethnic Russians that live here who speak Russian, uh, and uh, the, the Russian holidays, it's like in the United States, if you would legalize Independence Day, uh, how, how they would uh, react. I mean, it's just, would, it, in, in not being taught your, your language in school, just, just a couple of the examples, would just be, unbelievable and they realized that their ukraine was dead and it wasn't anymore their president was gone and what was left of their twisted ukraine is trying to push out the russian culture and they decided we're not going to have this we're going to break away like we're going to join russia like crimea did and they moved protests happened all the government buildings got taken over and a lot of them were taken over with Peacefully. I, uh, my first one that I saw was the main police station of Donbass here in Donetsk, where protest, about 5,000 or more protesters came and totally peaceful military came, said, we're not going to fight the people, take, take the building. And uh, because everyone here is Russia, they, uh, Russian, they have the, the same ideas. Everybody in 2014 basically wanted the same thing, to break away from Ukraine and join Russia. They just thought it was going to happen a lot quicker than it did. And unfortunately, a lot of people died and are still dying every day. Um, but the people here are still pushing as hard as they can to stay part of Russia and have a better life for their children. Patrick Lancaster, you are one of the very few, perhaps the only crowdfunded independent journalist working anywhere in the world, and certainly the only one working in a major war zone. Where can our viewers learn more about the work that you do? Well, my... Uh I put out my reports and updates on many uh, platforms. My main is uh, uh, YouTube, and you can look, find me just by uh, searching Patrick Lancaster or Patrick Lancaster News Today. Um, you can also find me on uh, Twitter at uh, uh, PL News Today, and of course Rumble and uh, Odyssey. 
Um, and Telegram, I have uh, both a Russian and English uh, language uh, Telegram, and uh, my Telegram's also Patrick Lancaster, there, where a lot of my shorter updates uh, get uh, posted if it doesn't come to be a full report on my uh, YouTube channel. Um, but YouTube's definitely a good place to find me, and you can find how to support my work in any of my videos on YouTube as well. The, we have the links in the description and the uh, comments. I'd like to thank our guest, Patrick Lancaster, for being with us, and thanks to our viewers for tuning in. Marie Colvin, the courageous British journalist killed in Syria in 2012, said, quote, It has always seemed to me that what I write about is humanity in extremis, pushed to the unendurable, and that it is important to tell people what really happens in war, unquote. For that, we should be grateful. I'm John Kiriakou, and you've been watching The Whistleblowers. Until next time.